Turn please to Philippians in chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, I want to read verses 10 through 20. Philippians chapter 4. Upon finding that, uh, please pray with me. Father in heaven, we come now to your word and I pray that you would grant to us hearts to hear, to listen, to understand, to embrace. But Father, I pray that you would, in your wonderful power, strengthen us to hear this, to understand it, to apply it. This might characterize us, uh, however mysterious it may be to us and strange to our culture. But Father, that it may apply to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians 4 and verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need for. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secrets of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church had entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift but I seek the fruit that increases to your account. I have received full payments and more. I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. As you might suspect given the length of this passage, it will take us two weeks to work our way through it because there are two themes this is honest here there are two themes one in verse 11 which is contentment notice Paul says not that I'm speaking of being in need for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content and then there is also the topic of God supplying our needs which I take from verse 19 which says and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus but I don't believe that Paul set out in this particular section of this letter to teach topically. I don't think he had in mind, okay, now it's time to get to to the contentment part or the part about God supplying our needs. But rather, what he really wanted to do simply was to say thank you to them. And he wanted to say thank you to them for the gift that they had sent to him by way of Epaphroditus. Uh, You'll notice um, in, in verse 14, he says, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. Uh, you'll notice then in verse um, 16, or he says, uh, verse 18, I have received full payments and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. And so he wants to thank them, really, for sending this gift. But for Paul, giving them thanks, telling them thanks, is a bit complicated, as many things are with him. Uh, so complicated that he has to end up talking about contentment and God talking about supplying uh, all of our needs. Because uh, you see, as he, as he comes to give them thanks, right off the bat it appears to us that, he, that he's kind of begun badly. Uh, in verse 10, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length, some of your versions have at last, you have revived your concern for me. It's as if Paul is saying it's about time 
that you've, you know, come to my assistance. But that really isn't what he means because he goes on to say to them, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. You know, it's sort of like you find yourself in desperate straits and you knew that if any of your friends really knew the straits you were in, that they would come and help you. And so you realize it must be that they're unable. They either don't know about it or they're not able to come or they don't have the wherewithal to come and help you. And so when they do bring help, you could very easily say, oh, at last you've come. Not because you want to say, hey, you should have come before, but I know that you're happy to be able to come. And I know this renews our relationship and, and, and confirms our friendship and partnership because you see, that's really what Paul was thankful for. And so, okay, okay, Paul, we understand you there. But then he goes on. And in verse 11, he says, not that I am speaking of being in need. Or in verse 17, he says, not that I seek the gift. And you're saying, you know, Paul, we heard that you were in need, so we sent you some stuff that would help you so you would no longer be in need. So why don't you just write us a thank you note like your mother taught that says, thank you so much for the stuff you sent. I'm much happier now. This is helping me a great deal, your friend, Paul. But rather, he wants to say thank you to them without saying thank you for the gift. He's saying it's not so much about the gift that I want to thank you. And we're going to say, why not? Well, you see, for Paul, giving them thanks has a couple of complications. First of all, uh, he doesn't want to give the impression that he's just in relationship with them for what he can get. Uh, Aristotle uh, defined friendship as having three levels. And while Paul would not necessarily buy into Aristotle, the people of Paul's day would well be aware of this notion of friendship. Aristotle said friendship had three levels. One was good, one was pleasant, and one was useful. Useful was the bottom of friendship. It simply meant... I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. I'll do for you, you do for me. We can set up an arrangement of mutually beneficial transactions here and we'll call it friendship. But frankly, if you stop meeting my needs or if I stop meeting your needs, we're no longer friends. And Paul didn't want to say, thanks for the gift, I really needed this and now I'm much better off as if the gift itself and the improvement of his circumstances were most important to him. Because it really wasn't. The second thing that Paul wants to be careful about that kind of complicates his giving of thanks is that he, he has already taught them a number of things he doesn't want to confuse. For instance, he's already taught them that even though he's in prison, he was rejoicing because the gospel was advancing. He already taught them that when they're in difficult circumstances, that they shouldn't complain. He's already taught them that they shouldn't be um, anxious or worry, but rather they should pray with thanksgiving. They should be thankful in their circumstance. They should pray with thanksgiving and God would bring them peace. In fact, their hearts and their minds, their emotions and their thoughts would be guarded by the peace of God. Not only that, he had taught them that the most valuable thing in all the world, the most valuable thing in their whole lives was to know Christ. That was more important than anything else. In fact, compared to knowing Christ, everything else was just garbage. 
In fact, compared to knowing Christ, everything else was a loss rather than gain. And so you see, Paul has to be careful. He doesn't want to make it look like his need is so great that it really doesn't matter who meets it as long as it's met. He wants them to realize that he was okay because of Christ even in the midst of his need. We're kind of distrusting of someone like Paul at this point because we think, you know, Paul, you really were in need. He was in prison for goodness sakes. He was such need that he had no freedom, he had no friends, um, he had no food. Uh, in those days, it wasn't up to the one who held you in prison to feed you. They could give you just enough to sustain your life, but it was expected that your friends would bring you food and clothing and all the other things that you needed. And to the degree that that wasn't happening was the degree to which Paul was probably slowly starving. So Paul, you're in need. Why don't you just simply say, thanks for the food, it saved my life. Thanks for the food, things are so much better now that we have popcorn. Thanks for the food, thanks for sending me this stuff. Because you and I both know that if we were starving, we wouldn't pretty much care who gave us food, whether it was a, a friend, a stranger, or even our enemies. We'd be thankful for the food. But you see, Paul doesn't want to make it appear, because it's not true, doesn't want to make it appear that he's just friends with them for what they can give to him. And he doesn't want them to think, because it's not true, that he isn't satisfied by Christ alone. And so that's his dilemma. And so he brings us now to this point of saying, the reason that I can say these things and I'm thankful to you because of this gift, this gift not because it changes my circumstance, but because it renews our relationship. It reminds me of our partnership in the gospel. And the reason I can say thanks, not for the gift, but because of all that, is because I was content even before the gift came. I would have been fine. And we think, you know, Paul... How can you say that? How can you say that you were fine? How can you say that you were content in the midst of that circumstance? Certainly, let's not be uh, silly about this. The gift helped him. The gift changed his circumstances. The gift made his life, as we would say, better. But you see, that wasn't Paul's goal. Paul's goal in his life, you see, was to be in partnership with these people that loved him. Paul's goal, you see, was to advance the gospel. Paul's goal, you see, was to learn of Christ. Paul's goal, you see, was to be satisfied by Christ alone. And that was already happening before the gift came. Uh, we know what contentment is. You could look it up in the dictionary, but, but if I ask you to define contentment, well, you could give me a good sense of what contentment really is. It's, it's a restfulness of soul it's a peacefulness of heart in the midst of a particular situation and Paul says he'd learned to be content in all kinds of situations whether he had a lot or whether he had a little meaning all kinds of situations I can have the same peace I can have the same restfulness of soul and, and we know that when someone is content they're not complaining complaining people are not contented people right 
We know that when someone's content in their circumstance, they're not jealous of the circumstance of another. We know that when someone's content in their own place, they're not envious of the place of another. We know that when someone's content in their own place, they're not coveting the position of another. And you see, coveting is little different than jealousy and envy. Jealousy and envy is you just sort of long to have what they have and want to have what they have. But coveting says, I should have what you have and you shouldn't. I deserve what you have, but you don't. That's not a contented person. A contented person is not an impatient person who says, I can't wait to get out of this situation and this circumstance. That's not a contented person. A contented person is one who has a peace, a restfulness of soul, who says, I'll be okay in the midst of this circumstance. Now, what contentment isn't, however, is this. Contentment doesn't mean that we enjoy pain. You see, Paul's in prison, uh, but he wasn't content because he had come to, to, to the place of being saying, I really like being locked up. I really like being confined. I really like being beaten. I really like starving. That wasn't why he was content. He hadn't just simply taken on his circumstances and said, this is great. Masochism is not a Christian virtue. Uh, contentment doesn't mean that we cease to feel. It isn't reaching a place where we no longer have any passion. Paul felt the pain. Paul felt the hunger. Contentment doesn't mean that we don't cry. Contentment doesn't mean that we don't laugh. Contentment doesn't mean that we don't feel. Oh, we do. But in the midst of the pain or the midst of the laughter, we're content. We have a peace, a restfulness of soul. Contentment doesn't mean that we can't change our circumstances. The Apostle Paul, you might remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, says this, he says, I wish, I think, everyone should remain in the calling in which they find themselves. Interestingly enough, he was writing to married people, and he was writing to single people, and he was writing to slaves. And he goes on to explain, most certainly about slaves, to say, you should be content to stay where you are as a slave. But if you have opportunity to be free, take it. Duh. Alright? Take it. So if you're ill, you need to be content in that situation. However, seek a cure. But as you're seeking a cure, don't do it with a lack of contentment. Don't do it complaining. Don't do it jealous, jealously. Don't do it envious of others who aren't sick. Uh, don't do it impatiently. But seek it. And if it doesn't come, if it doesn't come, purpose your life to be content in that circumstance. If you're in a lousy job, it's fine to seek another but don't complain don't be jealous of others who have a good job don't be envious don't be covetous you see and if the good job never comes stay peaceful stay content stay restful contentment doesn't mean that we get to look at people who aren't content and simply say buck up be content that's what the bible says because if they have a legitimate need and they're discontented, even in their discontentment, we should move to help meet that need. That's what the Philippians did 
for Paul. He was in need, he was content, but he was in need. And they didn't say, oh, that's okay, Paul can handle it. He didn't have any food, but he'll be content. Just leave him in his misery. No, 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 they came to help. So contentment doesn't mean that we just look at people in misery and difficulties and say, oh, just get over it, you'll be fine. Just be content. No, no, no. We still go, we still go to move and to help them. Contentment doesn't mean that we should ever be content in our sinfulness. That's the opposite of the Christian life. There's great discontentment with our sin. In fact, it moves us to repentance and to faith and obedience. Contentment doesn't mean we should be content with the sins of others. No, we should hold them accountable and then help them to move them to repentance and faith. But Paul says, contentment means in whatever circumstance I find myself, I can be at rest and I cannot complain and I cannot be jealous and I cannot be envious and I cannot be covetous and I cannot be impatient. And we say, are you the bionic man? I mean, how does this work, Paul? How does this happen? What are you, how are you wired in order to remain content like this? And Paul says, well, I've learned the secret of it. Now, that's a very interesting and helpful word, that little word, learned. Because you realize that Paul is a bit older now and he's gone through a process of learning. And now he knows something to be very true. Now, I'm not an educational theorist. I'm not an educational expert. But I know there at least needs to be two things in order for people to learn. I'm sure if you're an educational person, there's like 50 other things you could add to this list. And that's fine. But I think there's at least these two would be in your list. One, we need information. And secondly, we need a place and a way to apply that information really to have said we've learned. Now, Paul got his information, his understanding cognitively, spiritually, from God, from God's Word. And so he took that which was true concerning God and God's Word, and then he would apply it in all the circumstances and situations in which he found himself. Now, you see, I don't know about you, but, uh, but I learned this way of information and application. For instance, um, I learned that in difficult circumstances, I'm to be patient and not impatient. The Word of God tells me that. My guts don't. I learned that. That's the way it's to be. I'm to be content in every circumstance. The Word of God tells me that. My guts don't. I need a Savior. The Word of God tells me that. My guts don't, you see. I need to be forgiven. The Word of God tells me that. But it's also true that I really come to understand those words more deeply as I apply them. As I realize my sin and receive the forgiveness of God, the word forgiveness just bursts like the 4th of July. Oh, yes. And then when I'm in a situation where someone offends me and I forgive them, I understand forgiveness even more deeply. And so Paul says, I've learned to be content in every situation. That is, over time, I've applied God's word and I've cast myself upon him. And what I've learned through all that is that I can do all things, that is to say, I can endure all circumstances contentedly through Christ who in the midst of these circumstances strengthens me. Now, contentment is a rather remarkable thing. 
because it seems so difficult for us. Think of all the things that arouse you, that cause you to be discontented. Bad weather. We just complain about bad weather. It rains and we think it shouldn't. Or it doesn't and we think it should. And we complain. We don't like this and we're all of a sudden discontented. Your cable goes out for 20 seconds. And you go, where did it call him? What's going on? It's not working. You know, he's... Everything goes. Silence. No TV on. No CD playing. No phone in our ear. What do I do? Very discontented. The other night I had tickets to the Yankees-Royals game. And I was all excited. That's the best of all worlds. Contented as I could be. And then I got in the traffic jam on the way. My contentment went boom. No, Karen's didn't. She, she's going, that's okay. We don't have to go. What? <laughs> Fortunately, in my impulsiveness, we had left an hour early. So, hey, we had all kinds of time to get there and it worked out okay. That knowledge helped me a little, but not a lot because I wanted to get there early. But discontentment. And there are serious things. Would you have been content if you were on the subway in New York City last week when all the power went? What would have happened to your contentedness at that moment in time? You're on your way home from work, you're reading your newspaper, you're going, this is cool, my day is over, this is great. Hold up. How's your contentedness when half of your retirement benefits get eaten up by just a bad market? What happens when your job turns sour? What happens when you're unemployed? What happens when there's no prospects for a better job? What happens when you're in a marriage and it just isn't fun anymore and you're not really getting along? What happens when you're single and you really want to be married? What happens when the doctor comes and gives you that word that it really is cancer? What happens when war breaks out? What happens when it's your son that goes? What happens in those moments in the context of our peacefulness, restfulness, before God, Paul says, I've learned to be content in those situations. I woke up at 1.30 this morning, one of the hazards of being a preacher, and began to wonder how content I'll be when I'm unable to read anymore. When either uh, I'm too weak and tired because I'm older, uh, my mind isn't working, Although that happened last week. Um, Will I be content not learning and writing and working anymore? That could be, for many of us, years on our lives now. Because of how old we tend to live. Will I be content in in those years? Will I be content when it's my turn sitting in the doctor's office and he says, you know, Bill, this really is cancer or this really is heart disease or this really is whatever it is that's going to be a long-term debilitating situation or perhaps that very thing that will lead to your death, whether it's pretty or whether it's not. And, and will I be able to receive that news and live out those days contentedly? I thought about that. And the apostle says there's a secret to it. Apostle says that secret is learning and it's learning that you really can be content in that situation. You really can be 
satisfied with your life in that situation through Christ who gives us strength. You see, God's in the strength-giving business. The call to worship that I read out of Isaiah 40 is that very strength-giving passage concerning God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. By the way, just an aside. The call to worship is the word of God. Okay? So two things. It's just an aside. Number one, be on time for it. Number two, if I'm reading the call to worship and you're coming in, stop. Okay? It's the word of God. Stop and listen. It's good for your soul. If you didn't hear the call to worship, this is what you missed. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. What great news to somebody in the midst of a difficult circumstance. God knows. He gets it. He understands. He knows what's going on here. And he ain't tired. I'm glad one of us knows. I'm glad one of us is strong. And he goes on. Look at this. He gives power to the faint. And to him as no might, he increases strength. Even you shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. See, Paul says, I've learned the secret. The secret is the strength that comes to us, however mysteriously, from God. I've learned to rely upon that. Now you see, in order to be able to rely upon that, we must first reach this point of weakness. Because you see, the philosophers of Paul's day said this. They said, contentment comes from self-sufficiency. That is, you've got to have enough in yourself in order to get by in any kind of circumstance. And if you have enough inner strength where you have enough around you, then you'll be able to make it. The Stoic philosopher says, said simply, uh, get rid of all, of the, don't worry about all the stuff outside, just concentrate on your inner self and your inner strength. And if you're a strong enough person within, you'll be able to survive even torture, you'll be able to survive even starvation, you'll be able to survive uh, even uh, ridicule, you'll be able to survive anything, just as long as you're strong that way. And Paul said, of course, that's nonsense. We're not like that. Paul's contentment came not from self-sufficiency, but the sufficiency of Christ and relying upon Him. And that's why he could say, when I'm weakest, then I'm strongest. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He's saying, listen, when I've reached the point of really knowing that I can't, and I raise my heart, and I raise my eyes, and I raise my mind, and I raise my life to God, and I pour out myself to Him, He fills me with Strength. Now we may not feel that, but as we look back, we see we've made it. And we've made it because Christ has strengthened us. And Jeremiah Burroughs, an old dead guy from the 17th century, wrote a book entitled The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Great title. He knew it was rare, sad to say, 
even amongst Christians. But he knew it was of great value, this Christian contentment. So he writes this book entitled The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And he says this. He says, A Christian finds satisfaction in every circumstance. He's contented. A Christian finds every finds satisfaction in every circumstance. By getting strength from another. It's not self-sufficiency. Getting strength from another. By going out of himself to Jesus Christ. That is, not focusing on my own resources, but saying I'm bankrupt and going to Christ. You see, American contentment is based not so much on inner strength, is it? But on terms of external wealth. Contentment to an American is having the right friends, the right social status, the right political power, uh, enough money, and reasonably good health. You're content as an American. But we know that none of that lasts. That, I think, was the thought that brought me to wake up this morning to think, will I be content when I'm older and my faculties are gone? or worse than they are now. Will I be able to be content then? Or am I only content because I'm living a full, nice life? I get to think, I get to talk, I get to interact with interesting people, all those kinds of fun things. Is that why I'm content with my life? Is that why I like my life? That's going to go someday. So Burroughs says, a Christian finds satisfaction in every circumstance by getting strength from another, by going out of himself to Jesus Christ by his faith acting upon Christ. Now when these old dead guys use that phrase acting upon Christ what they meant was living by faith. Acting on what you know to be true about Christ. And so you begin to think about Christ in a difficult situation when you're discontented. And you begin to think, who is he really? First of all, he's the king. He rules and reigns. Oh, he's the ruler of all things. Thus, my particular circumstance is not an accident, but yet ordered in some sense, some real sense, by him. Not only that, but he's the very one who intercedes for me. He has my best interest in mind. So the one who controls all things and has my best interest in mind also then has me in this particular circumstance and this particular situation. However mysterious to us, that really is. But he says, now act upon that. Think, oh yes, this isn't an accident. This isn't arbitrary. This isn't punishment. This is from God, this particular circumstance and this particular situation. It's from Christ. And not only is he powerful and wise and ruling and reigning and has my best interest in mind, but I know that he loves me. Because greater love has no man than this, than he gives his life for his friend. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, give us all things? I know that he has my best interest in mind. He's proven that. And here I find myself in this circumstance, in this situation. Burroughs says, now act on that. Live on that. Allow that to feed your very soul. Remind yourself of that over and over again. Cast your heart upon God and say, oh God. Enable me to know the strength in me in the midst of this circumstance. John Bunyan had a wonderful expression, another dead old guy. He said, Oh, that I may learn to live upon God. 
So Burroughs says, act upon Christ. And bringing the strength of Christ into his own soul, he is thereby enabled to bear whatever God lays on him, whatever circumstance. That little phrase, lay it on me, is a 17th century phrase. And bear whatever God lays on him by the strength that he finds from Jesus Christ. There is strength in Christ, not only to sanctify and save us, but to strength but strength to support us under all our burdens and afflictions. And Christ expects, listen to this, and Christ expects that when we are under any burden, that we should act our faith upon him to draw virtue and strength from him. When we're in the midst of a difficult situation, when we find ourselves discontented and we go to Christ and we say, Christ, what should I do? Do you know what he says? Trust me. Obey me. Rely upon me. What I expect, he says to me, Bill, out of you in the midst of this situation is that in your weakness you'll come to me for strength. What I expect in this particular situation is that you'll cast all your cares upon me. What I expect in this situation that you will draw all your strength from me. A couple of verses very quickly. You know this one. Psalm 46, verse 10. The psalmist writes, Be still and know that I am God. The New American Standard Version cuts to the chase and simply says, relax. Relax. And know that I'm God. See, you can't be still, you can't just simply relax in the midst of a difficult situation. Period. But the information that we receive that says, and know that I'm God, and I will be exalted among the nations, says, listen, this circumstance, this situation is not out of my control. I will exalt myself. Hang tight. Watch. Trust me. Therefore, you can be still in the midst of that. Hebrews And chapter 13 and verse 5 says this. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He says, listen, don't think your security, don't be content in all that you have. Be content in this and all you need is this, this phrase right here. For he has said. You see, that's the clincher. This comes from God. And God says to his people, be content, even in the difficult situations, because I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Thus, if I am with you, if God is for us, who can be against us? Rest. See, that's what needs to be going through our minds through difficult circumstances. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great preacher, also dead, said this. He said about this passage, he said, this is the romance of the Christian life. Now, when I hear that word romance, I hear my wife saying, Bill, you don't know anything about that. But I do know this about romance. Again, like educational theory, I may have 50 other things that I don't know about it, but I know these two things. When romance is happening, there's at least these two things. 
Uh, one, there's an attraction. And two, there's a sense of wonder. For men, wonder equals fear. But when romance is happening, there's this sense of attraction. You know that you must be with this person. You know that you must go to them and find them and embrace them and reveal yourself to them and be with them and have them. There's this attraction. But yet there's this wonder as well that says, now I know this is true and I have this great sense that once I get there, it'll be great. But I don't know exactly how that's going to happen. I don't know exactly how it's going to work. I don't know exactly what's going to take place here, except that at the end of it, it's going to be great. And that's how it is in this romance with Christ. There's this attraction. We look in our own hearts and our own selves in the midst of difficult circumstances and situations, and we're discontented. We want to complain. We want to grumble. We want out. We think that unless our circumstance changes, everything will go down the tubes. We won't be able to survive. There's this attraction to the strong one. There's this attraction to the wise one. There's this attraction to this loving one. And we know we must go to him. We must cast ourselves upon him. We must understand his thoughts in the situation. And yet we go to him. And there's this wonder and perhaps even a sense of fear, trepidation. There's this wonder. I know that when I get there, the promise is that it will be good. But I don't know how that's going to work out. But we still go because we're attracted. We're drawn by His Spirit and we know He's our only hope. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me and for us that you would grant us a sense first of the truth that we can endure all things through Christ who strengthens us. And thus you would grant us the heart to go after Christ with our whole being, to know him, and to love him, and to trust him, to follow him, to obey him. And then, Father, if you would grant to us the result of knowing that and following him, which would be contentment in every circumstance and situation, For he and he alone, we know, satisfies. And this, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, uh, I remind you that there are elders available to pray. Please take advantage of that uh, situation. Some of you may be in difficulties and and, uh, you're attracted to Christ. And yet, it's difficult for you to cast yourself upon him. And so go to these elders who will help you pray. Uh, secondly, I remind you of the uh, uh, time this evening with Stephen Anna Kulik at 7 o'clock uh, here. So please come. Uh, the response to the benediction is Christ is my strength. Now when you say that, what you're saying is that I recognize my own weakness. I recognize my need for Him. And I'm drawn to Him. And I recognize that He and He alone is my strength. And when you say amen, it doesn't mean the end. It means yes. That's the truth. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you 
with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, Christ is my strength.